Revelation 17 verses 1 to 6 and then 19 1 to 5. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, come, I will show you the punishment of the great prostitute who sits on many waters. With her, the kings of the earth committed adultery and the inhabitants of the earth were intoxicated with the wine of her adulteries. Then the angel carried me away in the spirit into a desert. And there I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous names and had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was dressed in purple and scarlet <clears throat> and was glittering with gold, precious stones and pearls. She had a golden cup in her hand filled with abominable things and the filth of her adulteries. This title was written on her forehead, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and of the abominations of the earth. I saw that the woman was drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of those who bore testimony to Jesus. And then to chapter 19. Verse 1, after this I heard and what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for true and just are his judgments. He has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants. And again they shouted, Hallelujah, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. The 24 elders and four living creatures fell down and worshipped God, who was seated on the throne, and they cried, Amen, hallelujah. Then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, both small and great. It was Charles Dickens who wrote this book that you can see on this screen. He uh, wrote a famous book called A Tale of Two Cities. And in the uh, tale of two cities, it begins with the immortal words. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. And the two cities in question in that wonderful book were London and Paris. The time was the 18th century and the French Revolution and all that. The French do love a protest and uh, a revolution. And that uh, imagery, a tale of two cities, is a great way to understand not just what was happening in France in the 18th century, but that is a great title of a super book. And it's a super way to understand the whole of biblical history. The whole of the Bible can be summarized by that title. It's a tale of two cities. You've got the city of man and you have the city of God. You have the city of earth and the city of heaven. You have the city of hope and the city of despair. You have the city of then in the future and the city of now in the present. And that's really what is behind these two readings from Revelation chapter 17 and then on into Revelation 20 to the end of the Bible in the book, Revelation 22. You may have been longing for us to skip over the last few weeks and our few chapters today because of the symbolism and the imagery is heavy and complex, colourful and perhaps confusing. But there's one week to go before we get to heaven and we'll just dip our toe there today as well. We're looking at the next vision, which is chapter 17, 18 and into chapter 19 as well. And it's the tale of two cities. We might be longing for heaven but we're not quite there yet. And there's one more matter that needs to be attended to. One final hurdle before God wraps up all of human history and gathers together his people to enjoy his presence forever in heaven. 
the uh, cycles of judgment that we've seen week on week have prepared us for today. It's the uh, reality of seven seals being opened, the whole of history, the seven trumpets being blown as creation is uh, eradicated of sin and its consequences. It's the seven bowls that are emptied before Jesus returns. And uh, history from another angle, but the same reality is a tale of two cities. And before the heavenly Jerusalem descends from heaven to earth, there's one more thing that needs to be attended to. Babylon, Babylon the Great, that human city of hubris and arrogance standing in opposition to God needs to be dealt with once and for all. And once God has finally ridden the world of evil and sin and its consequences, then new heaven and new earth will appear. That's what chapter 17 is all about. It's profoundly good news, but it's shrouded in complex imagery that we need to attend to. This great vision of the new heavens and the new earth descending from the sky to the ground. And it's a woman, another woman that we saw, a different woman in chapter 12 and 13, a beast, another beast. We saw one in chapter 12 and 13 in a heavenly city in chapter 19. That's where we're going, a woman, a beast, and a city. Let's look at the woman. She's in chapter 17, verses 1, 2, and 3. Now, we've seen this repeatedly. We saw it through the pen or paintbrush, rather, of Banksy. You can see it on the screen now. Do you remember Banksy that we thought about in chapter 12 and 13? Banksy had painted a parody of Water Lilies by Van Gogh. It's a parody of the real thing. It's a copy and a counterfeit. It's a compliment from Banksy to do a copy and a counterfeit of Van Gogh, the great master's piece of art. But the devil, Satan, who is the scarlet beast of this chapter, he doesn't counterfeit the work of Jesus as a compliment. He counterfeits everything that God does because he wants to deceive. His motivation is very different from a from Banksy, who's paying a great compliment. He wants to be a forgery. He wants to be a do uh, a, a no good do gooder. He wants to be a do badder. He wants to be someone who can deceive and gather for himself a false people. And he wants to create an anti church. That's the picture we see in these verses. It's a, a parody of what we've seen before in chapter 12 and chapter 13. Do, do you remember in those chapters? In chapter 12 and into chapter 13, we saw God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit parodied by the dragon the beast from the sea and the beast from the land. And it, it's a parody demanding and longing for false worship. It's, a, it's an unholy trinity in chapter 12 and in chapter 13. And in chapter 17, as we see the identity of the woman, we see that that unholy parody of the trinity has an earthly agent that does their work. It's the woman that we're going to meet now. Look at her description. It's a horrible description. She's the agent of the beast that, verse 2, the kings of the earth have committed spiritual adultery. They, rather than worshipping God, who's their maker and loving ruler, sustainer and provider, they've committed spiritual adultery with someone else, with this woman who is very, very attractive. She's adorned with a magnificent appearance, verse 4. 
She's got the beauty of fine uh, linen and fine jewelry. She's the woman who sat astride this awful beast who is gouging itself and gorging itself on Christians. She's drunk on the blood of those faithful witnesses to King Jesus. It's a horrible, detestable picture. And who is she? Verse 5 tells us, so there's no mystery. This woman is not the life-giving woman of chapter 12 and 13, the church, who gave birth to the Savior, Jesus. This woman wants to not give life, but she wants to take it. She wants to deceive. She wants to allure. She wants to attract. But her end is death, not life. Who is she? She's Babylon the Great. Now, we saw her last week. Babylon the Great does not begin in chapter 12 and 13 and chapter 17 or even chapter 16 that we saw last week of the book of Revelation. Babylon and the identity of this woman is right back at the beginning of the Bible. In uh, chapter 11 of the book of Genesis, we see Babylon's origin. We see the city of Babel. The verses are on the screen. Verse uh, four, it says, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens, that we may make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the face of the whole earth. Right at the beginning of the Bible, we see an anti-God building project. We see the garden of God that becomes the city of God from the beginning to the end of the whole storyline of the Bible. But right at the beginning, we see a, an anti-garden. We see a human endeavor, men and women getting together. Did you see to make a name for themselves? They don't want to be scattered. They want to build a shard from an earth to heaven. They want to gather together and do something with the absence of God in their mind and in their consciences. They built this town, this city, reaching from uh, earth to heaven on the, 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 the plains of Shinar. And God looked down and judged them and scattered them. The very thing they didn't want to happen, God and his divine justice did. Because they were building not just a, a community building project for something to do during lockdown. They wanted to build something in opposition to the God who made them and who sustains them. But this ancient book and this ancient reality is forever new, isn't it? Isn't that something that we want to do in the 21st century? I want to make a name for myself. I want to make a name for myself by what I do and what I achieve. I want to show the world what I've made with my riches and with my hard work. We can't say this is only then. This is very present and real for us today. Don't you know who I am? Don't you know what I've done? Look at the, uh, the tower of my life that reaches to the sky. This is not an old irony. This is the need in every age for us to identify ourselves, make our own identity, make a name for ourselves in our own image, build something that's sustainable with the absence of God. It's the great temptation that every man, woman, boy or girl faces in every generation. It's an old reality that's forever new. Let's build for ourselves a name, they said. And God scattered them because of what they longed to do. He knew what was best for them. And if they were to remain and build a name for themselves, there was no hope. So in his divine justice, he scattered them to the ends of the known world before hope entered the world. That's the reality that we face, isn't it? To use our talents 
to use our efforts, to use our time here on earth, we either have a choice to build for ourselves a name or to build God's name, to build glory for ourselves and renown or to make his renown and praise and glory known to the world. It's, it's a human endeavor that we will either be part of the Babylonian kingdom building project, the kingdom of earth, the kingdom that won't last, or we will use our God-given energies and talents and time on earth to build his kingdom, to make our known great or our name known or his name known or make much of him. That's the two simple paths that we have to choose from. It's a tale of two cities, the Bible, and so is my life and so is yours. Who will you spend your best years building for? Because the woman you see is not alone. She's the human agent on earth. She's the ideology on earth that so many people are following in the Western world, where luxury and pleasure rule and reign. But the woman is not alone. Did you see verse three? She sat on this scarlet beast. Verses nine to 18 of Revelation chapter 17, we didn't have time to read today. And John does something unusual in those verses. He gives us clues as to who this beast is. Now, many Christians interpret these tricky verses in this way. They say this, verse 9, looking at the symbols of the ten horns of strength and the seven heads of the perfect number of kids, it looks undefeatable. And so many Christians say this. They say, verse 9, John tells us that the seven heads, heads of the seven hills of Rome. It's, it's a description of Rome in the first century that's surrounded by the seven hills and the ten heads they are the dual meaning of the rulers of rome the seven kings with limited authority but it looks unpregnable and rome was defeated by the 10 powers of the then known world that brought its its glory down flat it's this monstrous system of rule that covered the known world and the, not just the land but the seas these 10 horns verse 12 was finally destroyed by the enemies of Rome gathering together in the first centuries of, of the post-Christian world. And Mistress Rome was brought down flat to all her wealth and all her glory that uh, was suckled from the surrounding empires was brought low. Many Christians believe this is just a description of Rome, but I take a different interpretation. In keeping with the rest of the book of Revelation, I think that ten horns are symbolic in every chapter that they're mentioned. And also seven heads are symbolic of an impregnable power, something that's standing in opposition to God. It's a description of Babylon in the first century. That was Rome, but it's not Rome today. It's a description of an impregnable or looking like an impregnable force that stands in opposition to God. And just as in chapter 12, verse 3, you have the same description of the same powerful foe of God. In chapter 12, it's a dragon that's standing in opposition to the pregnant woman who gives birth to the Savior, gives birth to Jesus. And here you see the same description, seven heads, ten as well. And it's a picture of uh, unmitigated strength in an earthly realm and sphere. It's not one kingdom 
It was Assyria, it was Babylon, it was Rome, but now it could just as well be Western liberalism. It could be the communist state. It could be anything that looks like it will never be defeated and stands in opposition to the loving rule and justice of God. And no matter what it looks like, in the first century it was Rome. Look at what will happen, chapter 18. Just look at these verses with me. Any reign against God will be brought low. And so for Babylon in the first century, being Rome, chapter 18, verse 3, God will eradicate evil before he brings in his loving rule once again. There'll be no more immorality, chapter 18, verse 3. Chapter 18, verse 7, there'll come a time where there'll be no more self-centered, luxurious living. Chapter 18, verse 11. There's coming a time where there'll be no more ill-gotten trade or gain, no more slavery of the first century that was so popular in the Roman world, no more slavery in the 21st century, where people smuggle into cargo vans to try and get from Europe to the UK and so often lose their lives. This is not looking forward to the future. This is not describing a future state. This is describing what it is like when anything, any ideology, any king, any ruler, any emperor sets himself up in opposition to God. It's not a future state that's coming. It's describing the present age from the first coming of Jesus to Jesus's return. This is the challenge that every person faces in every city and in every home and in every heart. Will you live for now or will you live for the security of then? Will you live for luxury and all that this world affords and promises? Or will you stick fast to Jesus in patient endurance? It's now or then. It's earth or heaven. It's a tale of two cities. It's so binary. And this Babylonian thinking that was so present in the Roman world to the first recipients of this letter is brutal as it is seductive. Any civilization, any national empire that stands up against God would seek to ensnare people under its delusional power. It's luxury, but it will deliver slavery. Ultimate gain now is only from the devil who deceives. One day it will be no more, but now it's a shroud that covers so many with darkness. But one day Jesus says it will be no more. One day this seemingly omnipotent ruler will be brought low by the one who was and who is and is to come. And how will that happen? How will all that's wrong be brought right? How will all the trappings of luxury that's deception be brought to equality and justice? How will poverty be eradicated? Not by any human government, but by the loving rule of Jesus. Look at verse 14. How will justice be brought down like rivers? How will God's rule and reign be brought into a present reality? Verse 14, by a final battle of the beast and the lamb, this awful scarlet beast that the prostitute Babylon is astride, that deceives so many with power and destruction. How will anyone stand against this seemingly Uh, impregnable foe. Verse 14 tells us by the lamb. 
this huge mismatch, this tiny church in the first century against the power of Rome. And yet there's one winner, says verse 14. The winner is not who you think, Christian friend. The lamb will win because of who he is. The lamb will win because he's the king of kings and he's the Lord of lords. And he will conquer the monster in the way he always does by his shed blood on the cross and by the faithful testimony of those who follow him. He's the one who will protect his people from all harm. He's the one who will lead his people into safety of the heavenly city. The lamb of God is also the shepherd of God. And so it's been the woman. It's been the beast. But we need to look at the city before we close. There's a man called St. Augustine. He lived 1500 years ago and he wrote this wonderful book called The City of God, in which he meditates and riffs off this theme of the two cities that there are in the Bible. There's Babylon and there's the heavenly Jerusalem. There's the earthly city and the city of God. And he looked at the time when uh, shortly after this book was written and Christians were struggling to put together the reality of the Rome that was still ruling and reigning and yet the promises of the Bible. And brilliantly, Augustine said this, you may look over the uh, city of Rome and it calls itself the eternal city. It is beautiful. You can see it on a spring day and you could say it's unparalleled. But Christian friend, you need to say this and see this, said Augustine. The reason why you're so worried about the future in the second and third and fourth and fifth century is because you confuse the earthly city of Rome with the eternal city. There is only one eternal city, and it is not Rome. There is only one city that can't be broken. There's only one city that can't be touched. There is only one lasting city. It's the city of God, not the city of Rome. Rome is not the eternal city. It's a super book that you can read. Augustine was absolutely right. Because when you get through the hard passages of chapter 17 and 18, you begin to see the glory of chapter 19 through to chapter 22. Rome was destroyed. It never recovered. The impregnable nature of the imperial empire was brought down. But the city of God is still growing. The city of God is still secure. The only eternal city where God dwells. And so there's a song of praise in chapter 19, verses 1 to 10, as the bride is united with the bridegroom. The city of God is revealed in chapters 21 and chapter 22. And this wonderful meditation on heaven that we're going to be looking at over the next three weeks. Well, this is how heaven is described as a beautiful city with a river running through it. The angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit in every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city. What's this talking about? A city with a river going through it. Why use that imagery? Because you see, a city with a river running through it can never be besieged. The ancient tactic of besieging a city is you cut off the food and water supply and you starve them out. It's a long-term project. It's a horrible project. But you'd weaken them over time as they run out of food and water. 
you're starving them out. But you can't besiege a city with a river running through it. And here the eternal city, the city of God, the city of Jerusalem, the city of Zion, different words used through the Bible, they'd always have water, they'd always have resources that would never run out. And John is saying, Christians, hold fast. Rome will fall. All empires and ideologies that stand up against Jesus will fall. But there's one city where you'll be eternally safe. There's one city where you have all the resources you need. Live now, not for the human city, but live for the eternal city. And seek to make God's name great with all the resources that he's entrusted to you. So let me ask you a question. Which city are you a part of? And let me ask you another question. Which city are you building? Which city and how are you using all the energies and resources that God has given to you to build until he calls you home or until he faces justice? You see, the whole of the Bible can be summarized as a tale of two cities, the city of man and the city of God. In this book, to close as we go before the communion table, there are two main characters, Sidney Carton and Charles Darnay. They both loved the same woman in the 18th century France, and it's amid the uh, French Revolution. But Charles Darnay gets married, and uh, the woman to whom he's married gives him children. But as the French Revolution garners its strength, Charles Darnay is taken to prison. He's arrested and he's awaiting his execution. Sidney Carter and Charles Darnay look very similar. And on the night before he faces execution, Charles Darnay steals into prison and says, look, you have a wife, you have a child, but I want to die in your place. Let's change clothes. They look similar, Carton and Darnay. Let's change clothes and I'll die in your place, says Sidney Carton. And Charles Darnay says, no, no way. Are you kidding? I'll never let you do such a thing for me. And what does Sidney Carton do? He bops him on top of the head, knocks him out cold, and he puts his clothes on himself. Sidney's peace passes to Charles's. Charles's punishment passes to Sidney. And he has some people take him out. And he prepares to die for this execution of someone else. There's a one woman who is very nervous about facing execution the next day. I mean, who wouldn't be? And this seamstress is looking through the prison for Charles Darnay. He knew him previously. When she hears that Darnay is in prison, she looks for him and wants to get some comfort from him. So she starts to talk to Charles Darnay. Do you remember this? Do you remember that, that we did? But then, of course, as Sidney Carton starts to talk, she realizes that Charles Darnay is no longer there. He's escaped and someone is dying in his place. He's wearing his clothes, but his voice is different. And the seamstress says, are you dying for him? Are you dying for him? Yes, for his wife and for his children. And the seamstress says to Sydney, stranger, I've been feeling I'm not able to face my death, but could I hold your hand? Because if someone as brave and as loving as you holds my hand, I think I'll be okay. And Sydney Carton says, all right. 
He wasn't even dying for her, but his substitutionary sacrifice strengthened her to her very core. Friends, if that's true for a seamstress, how much more should it be true for you and I? As we reflect on the sacrifice of so many for so few, how much more should the substitutionary death of King Jesus today, as we go to the table, how much more should that enable you to be strengthened to your very core as you live not for now, but you seek to be a faithful witness for Jesus for that future day, where there be no more sin and suffering, no more tears or pain. But the lion will lie down with the lamb and the bridegroom, the church, will be reunited with King Jesus, his loving bride.